We have so many people that need a place to live. It just makes sense to be able to invest time as an investor into something that not only can make you wealthy, but at the same time, you create better lives for people. And I focus a lot on the kids that live in these parks and this idea that if I can help those kids not have to live in a mobile home park, not because they're not safe and clean, but because it means that they've been able to get out of poverty, they've been able to, to ha get an education, work hard, do those things. Like That's what makes me excited. That's what inspires me. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will teach you how to build wealth with real estate without buying yourself another job. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Logan Moffat. Today we're talking all about seller financing and creative deals in mobile home park investing. Logan is a very successful mobile home park investor. And today we're digging into a couple of deals that he did, particularly earlier in his mobile home park investing career. Those first couple of deals that he was able to get done creatively with very little money down. And those deals are now generating pretty significant cash flows for him and his partners. We dig into the deals, how he negotiated with the sellers and really focused on the seller's pain points to make sure that they were really maximizing the value and maximizing the opportunity, negotiating the best seller finance terms and so much more. He's a wealth of knowledge. We're getting some really interesting case studies here. We also discuss four key lessons that he has taken away from his mobile home park seller financing experience. We dig into one of those lessons in particular. And if you want to learn all four, just click the link in the show notes. You can get his whole explanation for all four of those four key lessons. It's a great conversation. If you're interested in how creative deals and creative structuring in real estate works, then there's some just great knowledge in this conversation. And Logan just really brings a lot of energy to us today. So you're going to learn a ton. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor. I focus on multifamily and self-storage investing. If you'd like to learn more, just go to investwithtaylor.com or click the link in the show notes. If you enjoy the show, don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. All right, now let's get with Logan. Logan, thanks for joining us today. Let's talk mobile home park investing. Before we get to four of the big lessons that you learned recently, can you tell us about where you are, what you invest in, and how you got started? Yeah, so I got into real estate because I wanted to invest in real estate. And I looked at all of these different people that I had seen growing up that had been investing in real estate, and I, I thought it was exciting. My plan was to work in sales make money, make a bunch of money, buy a bunch of real estate and retire. That was my plan. And I ended up going to school at BYU in Provo, Utah. And uh, today I live just, just north of Provo. And I started doing some sales jobs and realized, I don't know how much I like college very much. And I quickly switched my major, graduated as fast as I could, got out, started working in real estate to learn how it all worked. And I've always had a passion for real estate, but it's really been about real estate investing. The agent side of it's fine. It's just my real passion is investing. And, you know, over time, I've learned a lot. I mean, when you're getting into this, you don't really know what you don't know. And over time, you start figuring it out pretty quick. Some of the situations are ones you don't want to repeat ever again. 
And so you learn how to not do that ever again. And then some of them are much more positive experiences and you pursue those. So I stayed here in Utah. I saw what the market was doing. I grew up outside of Los Angeles in a, a city called Simi Valley, California. And I saw these people had invested out there, but I knew that California was not very landlord friendly and it, it's expensive. Real estate's expensive and the tax rate's high. And I, as much as I love the beach, I didn't love it more than becoming wealthy through real estate. And so I put my head down and started focusing on the market here in Utah. And we make decisions based on information that we have. And most of the time, if it's good information, it works out fine. It makes me look so smart that I stayed here. It's one of those things that I really can't take all the credit. I was just smart enough to stay here. And my logic was just good enough to make a decision that was good. Everywhere went crazy during COVID. Few markets were as crazy as Utah. So I had from 2020 through in the middle of 2022, my single family homes went up like 35, 40%. And a lot of these properties, I'll give you an example. I bought a condo in May of 2020 in a good spot next to a university called Utah Valley University. It's one of the largest, if not the largest university in Utah now. And I bought it for $180,000. The person wanted to be diversified, but didn't want to own the property more. So she seller finance to me. I thought, okay. So I, I told her, hey, I'm going to do renovation. She said, okay, well, $5,000 down. So I gave her $5,000 down. And within 18 months, it appraised at $320,000. And that wasn't my first creative financing experience, but that same type of appreciation happened like 15 times for me. And wow. so I positioned myself and my, all, everything I was doing was about this long-term 10-year, 15-year play. And so I'm really conservative with how I invest. And, and a lot of it for me is what work can I put in to make it a good investment? So I look for those value-add opportunities more than anything else. So I, I was smart enough to stay here in Utah. I was able to take advantage of all of that upside that happened during COVID. So a lot of my properties now, I'm like a 50-50 loan to value. When rates come down, it'll be awesome as long as values stay strong, which they seem to be staying strong. But that's really the plan. And so I started buying these houses. My goal initially was I want 10 rental units. And I was reminded about two years ago from a friend of mine when I had about 60 rental units. And he said, hey, didn't you remember like your goal is to have 10? And I was like, oh my gosh, I had totally forgotten about it. Because my whole perspective has changed, right? As I've learned, I've figured out how to scale. And you get to a point where you either scale or you stay small. And I got a few, got a few more multifamily, made a, made a hire and uh, got an operations manager. And, and we've made a number of hires since then. But you know, we've gone from being a broke recent college graduate to having almost 200 rental units and I got my license in real estate in 2015, but I bought my first property in 2016. And I really bought my first multifamily in 2018. And in the last two and a half years, really the last two years has just, it's been like a you know 300% increase in my unit count, my cash flow. And, and then the, the goals start becoming exciting because then it, you know, you, you look at where you came from, but then you start thinking, oh my gosh, I could make a lot of money every month forever. And no one can take that away from me. I can keep growing this out 
and then I had the realization of how rich people stay rich. And it's, it's because they have assets that pay them whether or not they wake up and go to work. So I know that was a long answer to that, but, you know, kind of shows you, I came from there, came up here for college and I've just continued to scale up and learn, try to figure out how this game works. That's awesome. So setting the vision and executing at a certain point, you started getting into the mobile home park space. Yeah. When did you get into mobile home parks? And we'll go into your recent lessons learned in seller financing of mobile home parks. Yeah. So, you know, it's so funny. I remember I bought my first park in 2018. That was my first multifamily. I bought it with a partner of mine and it was on the multiple listing service and it had fallen out of contract three times. The last time it fell out of contract, it was from an agent on my team who was representing a buyer who was trying to wholesale it. Because the rage has all been about mobile home parks, right? <laughs> well, the guy lost earnest money because he couldn't figure out how to get his stuff together and, and it fell through. And I was looking at it running numbers and I thought, man, this thing, this thing was good, looks pretty good. And my dad's a review appraiser. And I was talking to, to him and my dad, I love my dad. He's always wanted to invest in real estate and he never has, but he's always been in real estate as an appraiser. And which for everybody listening, that should be a lesson to people. My dad knows about valuations almost more than anybody else that I know because he's been doing it for a long, long time and he hasn't bought any rentals and he has always wanted to. So there's a lot of people that they get into that analysis paralysis. They're afraid of risk. They're afraid of trusting themselves, right? They're afraid of trusting themselves when they know it's a good deal. They're afraid to move on it because what if the market never comes back, which has never happened in the history of our you know, real estate in the United States. But what if that happens? What if the market somehow never comes back. Well, then we have bigger problems, right? That's the way that I look at it. <laughs> so bought the first park in 2018. When I was talking to different people, I talked to my dad. He said, man, these numbers just sound too good to be true. And that really set me up a lot because I started looking at my, my acquisitions differently because I typically buy from mom and pop owners, non-professional owners, and they have not run the parks well. And what's interesting about that is I look at the perspective of my dad, looking at it, saying that dad looks at it and says, yeah, the numbers seem too good to be true. Well, for a lot of people, they would look that way. They would look too good to be true. But what I've started doing is I started looking at the market and studying that local market and the rental market there. And but with mobile homes, it's a little bit easier because it's the bottom, right? You can look at the cheapest rentals and know that that's, that's what you have. That's your competition. You're not on the luxury side. You're not comparing against really even single family homes. You're looking at, you know, are there any apartments in that market? Are there any other mobile home parks out there? Are they professionally run? Are they mom and pop owners? What are you going to do differently to add value to make it so people want to be in your park, tenant owned homes versus park owned homes? That's, you know, we look at that as well. Because if somebody owns their home, a lot of times these, these owners, they've just kept the rents at the same rent forever. They, you know, they haven't changed it for 10, 15, 20 years. And these tenants own their homes. And so they've almost not been paying anything. But that means that all that maintenance in the park itself has been deferred. And the new owner has, they're the ones that are taking on all that cost. So it provides opportunities, but there's reasons why there's opportunities. Because the opportunities haven't been taken care of before. The maintenance hasn't been taken care of before. So I got that first park. We went and got a normal bank loan. We went to a credit union. And the best part was the credit union they always say this when you're, when you're new. They say, well, you don't have very much experience. 
which is funny because there's people, the credit unions, they don't have any experience. They've never owned a property <laughs> in their lives, right? I mean, they're the ones, the non-professionals tell me, I don't have experience. All they do is look at stuff and say, oh, is this person, like, are we going to be able to get our money back if they don't pay? You know, that, that's really what they're doing. That's their job. They don't own properties, but they're telling me I don't have experience. Well, we ended up getting that park and fast forward a little bit on that park. So we bought it for $230,000. The seller had about three acres of land on the street for sale as well. And I said, hey, I know you're having trouble selling that. How about you throw that in with the, the park? And he did. Whoa. No additional cost. It's 230, got the, the three acres, got the park, 15 spaces. They had a little bit of extra land. And then it appraised at 300. So I'm like, okay. They were still conservative, right? I'm like, man, we're in a great spot. So we held on to it for a few years. And then the house next door came up for sale. And I could send you some of these graphics as well. I have some zone sh drone shots so you can, you can see it. But we, the house next, just south of it came up for sale. And the house just next to it had pretty much the same amount of land as the park. So we got under contract. We went to the city and I said, hey, you guys need housing. You guys just had a city council member who couldn't find housing in your city that moved to another town because they couldn't find housing. And this is a rural area. This is a farming community. I think a lot of these rural areas, they're, they're overlooked, but they are starving for housing. And in some states, those markets are still growing. In Utah, the rural markets are still growing. Population, jobs, because a lot of the jobs are being pushed out of the cities, like meatpacking plants and all that kind of stuff. They're being pushed out of the cities, prisons, and then they're being built in these rural areas. Well, I told the city council, I said, look, I know you guys want to look at this and want to get some type of trial and see if it's going to work. I got this house under contract right now. Either we get our expansion approval and we expand and we, you know, I buy this house or we don't buy the house. We don't expand. And on the spot, they gave me approval for the expansion wow. from 15 to 33 spaces. And today... We are at, let's see, we have 19 spaces occupied. The stipulation they gave us was they ought to be brand new homes. So I got my dealer license and now I'm buying homes from the, from the factory. I have some investors, private money lenders that have been lending me money for the, the new homes. And then I've been selling them in the park to fill the spaces using my dealer license. So it's kind of a, kind of a fun, I mean, you get these layers on layers on layers, right? And you can make money in a bunch of different ways, but that's kind of the store in that park. So we're filling it now. The plan is to be filled the next 12 months because I'm trying, everything that I'm doing right now, my strategy is getting ready for rates to come down and to pull out capital out of all my communities. So in that park, I'm thinking, all right, 12 months to fill that whole park, get it to its highest use, get a really high appraisal, pull out $1.4, $1.5 million, tax-free money, split with my partner and go on a vacation or something, and then buy another park. So that's the first park that I bought. And my second park, this would be a good segue into the creative financing side of it because this was creative financing. So, and this one, I don't want people to think that all of them are going to be this way, but this was like the home run of home runs because this one park pays like three times what the median income is in Utah per year net. And wow. it didn't when I bought it. So what happened was, and this is the best part too. So everyone wants to know, well, where do you find your parks? Well, this park was located in a great area. And I found it because somebody went onto an investment page on Facebook and said, how do you sell a mobile home park? And I said, you should talk to me. 
they asked, how do you sell a mobile home park? You got to talk to me. And uh, yeah, so we got in touch. I got in touch with the actual owner because that was his brother that was put the message up. And I got in touch with the, this is the brother and it was a small park, a house, seven mobile homes that were park owned and then two RV spaces. So when you're doing creative finance, you want to find out what is the real issue for this seller. And the real issue for him was it was on a well and there was just enough people on that well. So I had to become a public drinking water company. So you'd ever, you didn't know this, but you are on this call right here with the owner of a public drinking water company. <laughs> so I'm not really looking to monetize that. And it's been a, a lot of hurdles to jump through, but it, what it happens is the EPA, if you have a well and you have so many people on the well, they put like, you know, two point whatever people based on census data live in each unit, regardless of how many people actually live in the units. So the EPA with the drinking water division of Utah said, hey, you got to become compliant. So I had to start doing water testing. I had to start doing all of these different things to make it compliant. It's been a lot of work. We actually just became fully compliant. They give you points and everything ranges. But basically, I got this uh, list of items. It was like 25 items that needed to be done. Some were big. Some were like installing a transfer switch so that if the power goes out, they could still have water with a generator. All that, you know. Imagine like 20 things like that. But because of that, because of that, the seller just wanted to walk away from the park because they, they hadn't run any type of tests since like the 90s. There were no water tests. I run two a month. They hadn't run a single one since the late 90s or like 1993, I think. So they started telling him, we're going to start finding you. And he's like, I got to get out of this thing. So going back to creative financing, find out what the pain point is. And he was feeling it. And he also was like most of these non-professional owners. He just collected payments from them. He didn't want to do anything. So what I ended up doing was we set up terms on it. He wanted 3000 bucks a month. So I amortized over 30 years and brought it to a, pay, a purchase price of 599000 at a 4%, 4.5% rate. And it's amortized for 30 years. After three years, he can call it due, but then I have 18 months to refinance. When you're creating seller financing, you want to understand what you're trying to do and understand how to protect yourself. And I was trying to protect myself from him deciding one day that he wanted a new house or a new truck or to go on a vacation. So I, 18 months is a long time. He's not thinking about this vacation in a way like right now it might be urgent, but it's not urgent like 18 months from now, right? So you know, he's looking at that and he's thinking, I'm getting paid 3,000 bucks a month. It goes right into his account. It's easy. This park was pulling in about $5,700 a month gross. So it wasn't bad, right? After the cost, I was probably making like, I think I was making like 500 bucks when I bought it. I did a huge park cleanup day. We took, in one Saturday, we took 15 dump trailers to the dump. Whoa. And I was out there. I was out there, you know, loading this thing up. That's another little point. I don't think a lot of people realize that they need to be willing to walk on glass to get where they want to go. I mean, not, not all of this is fun. I mean, it's fun in kind of a weird, sick way, right? But it's, <laughs> but like you're getting in and you're trying to figure out how this stuff works because when you go and hire somebody for it, you didn't know what you're paying for. You didn't understand what that exchange is. If I'm paying somebody 1000 bucks, 2000 bucks to clean something up, I need to understand what the alternative is of me doing it, right? You can weigh out that pain versus the cost. And to wrap up this park, and this is where people need to really focus 
on understanding value adds. I got seven park-owned homes. So I've been going through the process of seller financing all of those homes. And this is where this is going to blow everybody's mind. And this is where I want to caution people know that they're not all like, like this. But even half as good as this is still great. The rents when I bought it were five fifty to six hundred a unit. I had a vacancy. One of the first vacancies where when I started doing little rent increases, like you know, 20, 30 bucks a year sort of thing. My first vacancy that came up, I re-rented that home for sixteen hundred dollars a month. Whoa. How? It was in a great area. It's really close to Park City. So there's no housing around there. And the cheapest housing around there is like I mean, the median home price there is like seven fifty. It's wow. a really expensive area and there's really big lots. It's surrounded. Somehow somebody snuck in a mobile home park at one time and then this area became really hot. It's right in between Sundance and Park City in a town called Daniel, Utah, which is next to Heber and Midway. It's a beautiful area. It's actually probably one of the nicest areas in the entire state. I've, I've had people look to build little hobby ranches out there. People that have a lot of money and beach houses and stuff. Like that's how nice of an area it is. And... So that's what happened. All of a sudden, I realized how far under market rent I was. And then the next vacancy came up. I had two vacancies. So I kicked out the two RVs. My only eviction I've ever had to do was a, a, one of those RVs. I was like selling drugs. Okay. And I replaced those two RVs with two manufactured homes. And I rented one of them out for $2,000 a month. And I rented the other one out for, no, sorry. One of them, the, the one that was rented for 2000 I rented for 1700 And the other one I rented for like $1,550. So now all of a sudden I have three homes that are now pulling in the total gross rents that I was making before on just three houses. But then I started getting a little bit smarter and I thought, well, I don't want responsibility for, for these houses. I had one burned down. I thought, man, I got to figure this out. I don't want that responsibility. So I started seller financing the homes. I started adding three or $400 on top of their rents and working out a seller finance contract where they owned it. So now they have the maintenance responsibility, but now I'm able to go and collect for the next 10 to 13 years on a basically a mortgage. And one of them was paying $2,000 a month and they said, okay, we'll go up to $2,330 a month. I got all these homes, including the cost at the, at the 599 so this park became this huge home run where it went from pouring in $5,600 $5, a month to $15,000 a month. How much of this was the vision from the beginning? I mean, obviously there's been all this upside on the back end that you've kind of yeah. you know, come to, but did you see that coming on the front end, like the $1,600 a month rent when you had that first one? Did you know that that opportunity was there or did it kind of start with, well, we have this great seller financing opportunity. It'll make a bit of money on the front end and on the back end, we'll figure it out. Or did you see this great uh, so, potential on the front end? So one thing that I didn't mention was it was zero down and the seller paid for their own tile fees. Wow. So it was about 1200 bucks in. And I've learned a few things since that one that I would have added into this contract. Like I would have deferred the payment a couple months, that kind of thing. But we live, we learn, right? Yeah, I had no idea really what I had bought. In fact, I almost brought in a partner on it that I have with my other park. And he's a good partner, but I didn't need to because it, I didn't need to come with any money out of pocket. So it came out to, what am I willing to figure out? And when you start figuring things out, it really opens everything up because you're not afraid anymore. 
you're afraid of the unknown. You're afraid of what could happen. When you start doing this, any type of multifamily or single family homes or development or anything you're doing, you start learning how this works more and more. So I was thinking that it could turn out to be like a, like a 7,000 or like $8,000 income and I could make like an extra 24,000 a year sort of thing. And then I could do that and hold it and that ground would be really expensive. And then in like 20 years, I could develop it because there's no sewer, it's septic. So until there's sewer, we're talking about the utilities, until there's sewer, you know, it's not, not as valuable. When there's sewer, it'll become much more valuable. So that's what I was thinking. That's what I was going to plan on. And I've, start, I've started becoming really good at looking for those layers of income. I charge for pets. I charge for dirty yards. I charge for parking if they have too many vehicles. Everything I do is about creating a good communities. And yeah, it might be more of like, you know, if, it, if it's carried in the stick, maybe I'm more using the stick. But it's not fair for the kids that live in that community and the other families that live in that community to live next to a junkyard because that's common in these, in these communities. So we, we get people to clean up their crap. So we're a bit short on time here. It is interesting that the, the 2330 a month, I mean, that's more than the mortgage on my home and I have a pretty nice home. So it's incredible the amount that you're able to bring in on these mobile homes. But I do want to make sure we get to the four lessons that you learned. We had connected because you posted these on Bigger Pockets. We'll put the link to that forum post that you put up in the show notes so folks can go read the whole thing. If yeah. you want, I want to lay these four things out. Maybe we can dig into one of them here before, before we go. So first one, leverage seller motivation for better financing terms. We kind of got into that a little bit. Number two, optimize seller financing notes for your benefit. Number three, negotiate for necessary property improvements. And number four, Secure written permission for pre-leasing vacant units. I think we have time to dig into one of those. And folks, if they want to read more, should click yeah. the link in the show notes. But which one would you like to uh, dig into here? While Let's together? dive into the pre-leasing aspect. Awesome. Because the pre-leasing aspect, it's important to be able to start knowing what the market's doing. Because you're gonna, if you're going to buy any type of multifamily or even a house, how do you know what the market's doing? In a lot of these areas, there might not be good enough comparables. So it's not just about filling the vacancy. It's also about knowing what is this vacancy? What do I have? What am I dealing with? So that's, that's the first thing I add to it. The second thing is I basically took over this last park and I have two vacant homes. I should have asked the seller to do a little bit more for me. Like I should have told them, hey, send me some good pictures. Said I went out there and did pictures. It took me an entire day to go and do that drive. <laughs> right. <laughs> You know, like little things like that, but, but it all within that pre-leasing. The pre-leasing also, in addition to that, we've owned this park now for about two weeks. And I just met with my operations manager and his assistant about how are we going to fill these? When are we going to fill these? And I mean, if you think about it, these homes, we're going to rent them for about a thousand bucks a piece. There's two of them. I just lost a thousand dollars, right? Because I didn't pre-lease it. It's gonna, they're going to sit. I mean, it's been vacant for two weeks and if it takes another two weeks to fill them, yeah, I just lost $2,000. And I don't think investors think enough about that time aspect, but that pre-leasing lesson that I learned is really about focusing forward on not just the renovations that need to happen, but on the income producing activities and the opportunities that we have to fill vacancies, to fill vacant spaces. I got two houses with that as well. And so 
one of the things we had to give one of the houses tested positive for meth. So we had to get it remediated and we're already in the process of getting that tenant out. I was smart enough to have the seller give them notice. So they're already you know, through that and they should be out in, in a week. But having that forward thinking of I'm feeling this vacancy, this vacancy on this at this time, I don't think investors look at the big picture enough. And so they, they miss out on a lot of money. And that affects a lot because when I, on that last park that I was looking at, the reason why I started trying to look at ways I could make more money was because I realized I was holding on to all of these mobile homes because I was afraid of selling them and not making enough money. And the re- realization in me was I could make six or $700,000 more by seller financing these homes over the next 10 years. So that time value of money is really what that's about, right? Is really saying, I have a vacancy, I need to fill it. Mr. Seller, we let me fill it. I've had times where I put ghost listings up to be able to try to gauge a market. And I don't think we're, as investors, I think we're kind of too timid around that. We need to be a little more aggressive on filling our vacancies with good tenants and getting really good at it. So we can do it over and over. Because when you scale, you're going to filling, you get a lot of units. Like we fill, we're doing like five to 10 a month sometimes. That's a lot of turnover. I mean, not just turnover, like people coming and going, but like we're doing major renovation projects in a park right now. It had over 20 vacancies and they were all like, all the spaces had units and we've just been turning them. So we've been filling two to three, like the first few, the first month, it was like five every week, just about trying to get things ready to go. But Having that forward thinking with filling the spaces with maximizing rents, it's not just about raising rents as high as you can. It's about finding ways to really have a good, strong base in that property, where as you raise rents, you're getting the most, the highest and best use with that property. Great. Okay. So awesome lessons there. Before we go and take a quick commercial break, if you were going to talk to yourself back when you first started getting into mobile home park investing. And let's skew it a little bit for today's market because times have changed since 2018. What like one piece of advice would you give yourself if you were getting started again today? Find the sellers that have problems that need to be solved. I don't think we need to overcomplicate that really because the biggest issue is people with real estate investing, they put their heads in a box. Like, you know, you get this, you look at people that are so in the box that they don't think any, any, you know, outside of that at all. They're thinking traditional financing, I need 20% down over and over and over again. And that would take you forever to get rich in real estate investing doing that. Like it would take you a really long time. Find the people that want to sell that have a problem. Find the, the multifamily properties that are just sitting, that are partially rented, that need to be renovated. Find the problems. Find them before they're on the MLS. Build that network so people bring you the problems and systematize it. Nice. I love that. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right. I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Go for it. Great. First one, what is your number one book recommendation? I don't know if you can buy this anymore. (laughs) I think they may have some on Amazon. I bought about six boxes from the author because I wanted to make sure I could get them. So this is How to Buy and Sell Real Estate Without Using a Bank. And this is by Michael P. Watson. And uh, interesting guy, if you go and search him. <laughs> he's got a colorful history in some ways, but he's a great guy. This is like 
my Bible when it comes to seller financing. I, I refer back to this a lot. It goes through different types of seller financing. It talks about crafting offers and it, it's extremely simple. He has another book called Highest and Best Use. It's all about development and that's allowed me to do multiple developments that some of them, I mean, I, I did a 23 unit condo complex. Learning the things from this guy, right? So yeah, how to buy and sell real estate without using a bank. So nice. people can reach out to me if they're having a hard time finding it and we can figure out how to get, get them a copy. That's a good one. I have not actually heard of that book before. So maybe I'll have to see if I can find myself a copy. Now we go to question number two, who or what inspires you? You know, I think I want to make sure that when I die, that I've had some type of impact. And that's not even people knowing my name necessarily. I've gravitated towards the mobile home parks because I feel like I'm the only one creating affordable housing units, like true affordable housing units in my state. And all the grant money is going to these big, rich companies building you know, huge apartment complexes or hiring townhomes. And it's just crazy to me. We have so many people that need a place to live. It just makes sense to be able to invest time as an investor into something that not only can make you wealthy, but at the same time, you create better lives for people. And I focus a lot on the kids that live in these parks and this idea that if I can help those kids not have to live in a mobile home park, not because they're not safe and clean, but because it means that they've been able to get out of poverty, they've been able to, to get an education work hard, do those things. Like that's what makes me excited. That's what inspires me. Creating those opportunities, getting people out of poverty, creating safe environments for people that raise their families, for people who are elderly. That's really important to me. I love that. Question number three, think about Logan at 80 years old, speaking to Logan of today. What advice does 80 year old Logan have to give to Logan of today? I think it's to be fearless. You know, life is too short. I, I'm sure it happens to you too, where you catch yourself being dumb and thinking, man, why am I afraid to do that? I don't understand it. Subconsciously, you're stopping yourself from doing something great because you let yourself be afraid. And most of the time, you're just afraid that you're afraid of what somebody else is going to think. And it's not even about you. It's not even about what you want. You're worried about things that aren't important. So I, mean, I think that would be what it is. I think I, I would tell myself, hey, be fearless. In the end, it's just money. and you know, if that's what we're afraid of losing, if that's what we're afraid that we're not going to get or that we're you know, going to get, sometimes we're afraid of getting something. <laughs> so yeah, be, being fearless now and being fearless forever. Awesome. Well, Logan, thanks so much for joining us today. If folks want to find you, where can they track you down? You know, I post on Twitter and LinkedIn and on Facebook, but the, the best place would be on Instagram. I found that that platform is the easiest to share what we're doing. I have content on there about new developments. We're building a 10plex right now, three stories. And I, and I post regularly, at least every day, about what we're doing, the different investments that we're doing. And, and I'm always an open book so people can feel free to reach out and ask questions. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. We'll put your uh, Instagram handle in the show notes. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate that so much. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.